Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, this Advent, we are exploring the mysteries of Christmas, uh, this compelling story of a child born in a manger uh, has captured our imaginations and has so many elements to it that are mysterious and actually quite puzzling when you recognize them for what they are. Uh, our goal, though, in this series is not simply to explain away all of the mystery, but rather to enter into the beauty of the mystery and allow it to change us. Uh, Richard Rohr, in his book, The Divine Dance, says, Remember, mystery isn't something that you cannot understand, but rather it is something that you can endlessly understand. Uh, There is no point at which we say, I've got it, but always and forever, mystery gets you. Uh, And that's really what we're trying to do in this series, is we're trying to allow the mystery of Christmas to get us, uh, to get under our skin, and to uh, just really change us. In the first week, we looked at the story of John the Baptist, uh, which is really the second nativity that we often don't recognize in the Christmas story. Particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, John the Baptist is given just as much uh, uh, airtime, you might say, um, as the, the birth of Jesus. In looking at the story of John the Baptist, we learned that God goes ahead of us and he prepares the way. That God is uniquely capable to be fully present with us right here where we're at, and yet he goes ahead of us as well to prepare the way for us. Then last week we looked at this, uh, the concept of the virgin conception. And what we realize is that right at the heart of the Christmas story is an invitation to participate in what God is doing. Uh, But in order to do that, we need to practice the presence of God today. Uh, We need to be a people who learn to practice the presence of God. And we can do that first by learning to see the presence of God. Uh, That we would have unveiled eyes of the world to begin to see the activity, the presence, the goodness of God in all of the things uh, that we see. But also, we need to learn to then embody the presence of God. And true to uh, almost everything in Scripture, God does not just do something for our own benefit. God does not just do something so that we can receive it. But we are also, as those who receive grace, we are called to, to give grace out. As those who receive God's strength, we are called to then to be a strength to others as well. And so as we are to see the presence of God, we are then called to embody his presence in the world. Today what I want to look at, I want to look at the mysterious part of the Christmas story that Jesus is born in a stable. That Jesus is born in a stable. And if you uh, want to follow along with me, I want to read Luke chapter 2. This is the famous uh, Christmas passage. As I was doing soundcheck this morning, my daughter Jaden said, Hey, why are you reading our uh, Christmas story for next week. <laughs> and I said, because this is the famous one that everybody likes to read. So Luke chapter 2, and I want to read the first seven verses, uh, so I won't steal all of the E-Kids thunder for next week. Uh, but it says this, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. The nativity of Christ has captured the imaginations of artists, Uh, for centuries. And 
in all the different depictions uh, of the nativity scene, uh, we get some common elements. We, we often uh, have depicted the, the light uh, or coming from the star or the star itself. Uh, often in, uh, in more ancient uh, expressions of the nativity, uh, the light was symbolized just as a light around the head or face of Christ. Um, but we get the lights, uh, we have the stable or the manger, and then we also have the animals. In fact, I want to give you just, just a really small sampling of some artistic renditions of the nativity. Uh, this first one is done in kind of a stained glass style. You can go ahead and show that first one now. Uh, you can see that this is, uh, looks a lot like a stained glass. In fact, it may just be a picture of stained glass. But this is uh, the light around uh, the baby Jesus uh, being depicted there. Uh, you look at the back left-hand side, you can see the depiction of animals there. And then the whole thing just kind of gives you a sense that it's in a, a stable or, or cave of some kind. Uh, the cave then is more explicit in the second picture I want to show. Uh, here is uh, the baby Jesus there. Uh, it looks like baby Jesus is glowing, but again, that's just an artistic way of, of uh, presenting the light of, from the star. Uh, we see the animals there. Here we have the Magi, which is another common, uh, common depiction. Uh, of course, um, we know that that's not historically accurate because it wouldn't, the Magi wouldn't have been there until Jesus was about two. Uh, but here we have the cave, the animals, the light, all of those classic depictions. Uh, the next one is a, what's known as an icon or iconography uh, of uh, the Nativity of Christ. Uh, icons are really interesting. They can do a lot in a, in a single picture. Uh, I love this picture because uh, you have the angels uh, on the, there on the left and right, and then you have uh, the shepherds, so the announcement to the shepherds. You have Mary and Joseph uh, and Jesus, all of their heads uh, glowing there. You have the animals um, you have the, the visit from the Magi. There's a lot going on. Uh, the star shining down almost looks like a sword. I promise you it's not. Uh, it's not a sword, <laughs> but uh, a light, uh, beam of light going down. Uh, iconography is really, uh, really neat artistic depictions of the stories uh, of Christ uh, and the Gospels. Uh, but not only, not only artistic depictions of the nativity, but uh, if you go into homes around Christmas uh, in churches, you no doubt find uh, figurines or different uh, expressions uh, that are not just art on a page or a canvas, but are, are tangible art that you can touch and feel uh, with figurines. In my own home, we have uh, nativities uh, made out of marshmallows. Uh, that's a real thing, a little baby marshmallow Jesus. Uh, we have uh, marshmallow snowmen, or we have snowmen nativities, a little snowman Jesus, uh, because we're super religious in our home, you can tell that. Uh, we also have a little people uh, nativity set, and so uh, all kinds of, like, if you can dream it up, there has been a nativity made. Um, as I was doing, you know, researching all the different kinds of nativities, I found out that there's a Lego nativity, so that's a big hit. Pretty sure we're going to be purchasing that one, so, um, uh, so lots and lots of different things. Uh, depicting this story that has captured our imagination. And again, all of these scenes contain these essential elements of the story. The star, the manger uh, in a stable with animals, and the visit of the Magi. Um, I want to mention to you this, this Greek word, uh, the, the new NIV. Uh, the NIV isn't always the NIV. It first came out the, in 1979. There have been many uh, editions since then. Uh, and each one has little tweaks in it. And I like what the newest NIV has done. 
uh, because when it says there is no room for, available for them, uh, the new NIV says guest room. Now, you may have noticed, uh, or you may, maybe that came across as odd to you because the way that you learned it or always thought about it was there was no room in the inn available to them. The Greek word there is the Greek word kataluma. It's often translated inn, uh, but another totally acceptable translation is, in fact, guest room. What we often do is we think about this, as we think about the story of Mary and Joseph, we think in terms of a hotel. Uh, we grew up with this translation, inn or hotel. Uh, so we think of hotel, and so they, they get to Bethlehem. All the hotels and motels are full. So everywhere from the Holiday Inn uh, Express to the Motel 6 or the Econo Lodge, those are all full. So whether they had lots of money or a little bit of money, they can't find anywhere to sleep. And so they have to go to a local barn. And that's often how we think about it. But that's really not the case of what happened uh, with Mary and Joseph and the manger. Houses were often constructed, constructed at this time with uh, just houses being a large room. They didn't have like floor plans and all of that. They just built a structure. Uh, but what, what they would do inside of this large room house is they would have an upper level and a lower level. Now, it wasn't like, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it was much more basic and simple than we would think of architecture, but they had an upper level and a lower level. The upper level was reserved for the life of the family, while the lower level was then uh, reserved for the family's animals. Every, almost every family uh, would own at least some uh, livestock or animal, and they needed a place to keep them, and so they would often just keep them in the lower level of their own home. Uh, now, I want you to think about that uh, just for a little bit of how their homes must have smelled. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, that's the case. That's how it was. And so uh, the, the idea here, there was no room in the guest room. That's a very good translation because what often would have happened is they probably showed up at Bethlehem because the census was going on. No one had any space in their upper level of their home. There was no guest rooms available. And so they had to sleep in the lower level uh, with the animals. Now there's another possibility because animal troughs, that's what a manger was. It's an animal trough. Uh, the animal trough was often also located in caves, as we saw in the second nativity depiction that I showed you this morning. It was often found in cave cutouts. And so it's very possible that Jesus was either born in a home on the lower level with all of the animals or in, a, in the cutout of a cave. This is the, the real setting uh, of Jesus' birth, more so and more accurate than just what we would think of as a barn or a stable. Uh, and so... Um, what we do know, though, and what, regardless, because the short answer is we don't know exactly where Jesus was born. Uh, we just know that it was in Bethlehem or in that surrounding area, but we, don't, we can't pinpoint the place where Jesus exactly was born, and so we have to just uh, come up with some ideas. But what we do know is that Jesus was born among animals and that his first bed was a manger. Now, if you are like me, you have always pictured the manger as a wooden structure, uh, but Again, this is a feeding trough for animals, and it was most likely uh, not made of of wood, but made of stone. Uh, And so here is, uh, from the Holman Bible Dictionary, uh, a picture of what a manger would have looked like at this time. So here's a a stone manger. Now, it doesn't doesn't give you quite the emotional connection as the wooden stable. Uh, Maybe that's because we're so used to seeing the wooden stable or the wooden manger, Uh, but uh, there it is. That's, it was most likely three feet long, 18 inches wide, two feet deep, uh, so it fits quite a bit of food. Uh, but I, I tell you all of this because I, I want you to picture this. Uh, in the lower level of a house, uh, among animals, uh, or in a cave cutout, uh, but 
among animals, and his first bed was this stone feeding trough. God made flesh, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Word of God, Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, was born in a place where animals were kept and then laid in a stone feeding trough for his very first sleep. And this is how the story of salvation begins. Uh, I want you to consider the alternative. Uh, Jesus is born as the King of Kings. Uh, He is born as a Son of God. That as a child, as a baby, as an infant, he is fully man and fully human. He is fully divine. He is God-made flesh right from the very start. And so when you compare his beginnings to what he uh, deserved or should have gotten as the king of kings, then the difference becomes even more stark. Uh, If he had been treated like the royalty he was, he would have been born in a palace Uh, His birth would have been announced and trumpeted to the whole village. And next week, as we close our Advent series, we're going to look at the announcement to the shepherds. Uh, But Jesus, if he had been given the treatment that he deserved as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords, as the God-man, the God incarnate, he would have been born in a palace. The announcement of his birth would have been made throughout the whole entire village. He would have been surrounded by all of the most elegant comforts of his time. And instead of a manger as a bed and straw as his mattress, he would have been given a royal bed with linens made of the finest fabrics, uh, probably silk. Uh, There probably would have been silk linens waiting for him in all the comforts, uh, all the highest comforts available to him at the time. In fact, just to give you an idea, here's an artist rendering of what a royal bed would have looked like. Here's a royal bed. Uh, most likely, this was, would have been uh, inlaid with gold. Uh, I want to point out just a couple of things. This would have been covered in gold. Uh, look at the legs of the bed. It was very traditional for legs of a bed to be uh, made uh, to look like and engraved as animal legs. And so just imagine the care uh, of engraving that by hand. This is not take it through a milling machine and, and pop out a thousand per day. This is engraved by hand, inlaid with gold, the finest fabrics, the most comfortable mattress. This is the bed that Jesus, at least something like this is an approximation. Uh, but this is something at least like what Jesus could have experienced as his first bed. In addition to that, all the finest comforts, the finest linens, the nicest bed for royalty, palace guards would have been there. And they would have had to approve any visitors to the palace or to see the birth of this new royal baby. Um, And so when you compare the two, between this stone manger Uh, with straw as a mattress, to the royal bed covered in gold and then with silk linens, you think this is actually quite, quite mysterious that the God-man would come and be born in this kind of environment. 
And if you're like me, if you have this sort of inquisitive nature to you, you have to begin with the question of what in the world does this mean? What does this mystery, what does this beauty of the Christmas story point us to? Because the, the, the fact is, is that all of these things work together to sort of give the Christmas story its, its power, right? I mean, if, if Jesus had been born in a palace with the royal bed, put, protected by palace guards, all of that, then the whole world would have said, well, yeah, I mean, that's just like every royal baby was born. There's nothing unusual. It's the fact that there's announcement to shepherds, the born of a virgin in this stable, in this ma- born in a manger with a bed of straw. It's like all of these things kind of work together to build, in, build this mysterious, mystical nature to this story. But we, we again just have to ask, what does this point us to? What is the mystery inviting us into? And what does this mystery want us to know? What does it want to show us? And I simply want to say very, very quickly that I, I believe that it means this, that the God that we serve, the God that we worship as we gather together every single week, the creator God of the universe, Yahweh of the Old Testament, this God is approachable, accept, accessible, and available. This God is approachable, he's accessible, he's available. In other words, palace gates do not bar our way to him, and there are no ring of guards to prevent our approach, but rather we can go to him, we can approach him, and we can enter into his presence, and it's unhindered. And yet we still have to maintain that God is tremendously holy, that God is as God coming down as, hum, as a human is not in any way compromising his holiness. But think of the way that we've always thought about holiness. Our view of holiness has often led us down roads of, uh, to use words like purity and cleanliness. Oftentimes we have understood holiness as being unaffected uh, by sin, not stained by sin, a, a purity that is unbroken. We, we have had this holiness that has that means to be completely separated. And in fact, the word holiness means to be separate. And so it's understandable that we would understand God's holiness as one who is separate, far off, unaffected, and not stained by anything that we might be going through or any sin that we might be participating in knowingly, unknowingly, uh, any of our brokenness. We would certainly assume that God would want to keep his distance from that. Because he is, in fact, holy. And holiness means to be separate. But this is not the case. When it comes to this very mysterious and unexpected God, this God who works and moves and and, and has his being in very mysterious and unexpected ways. You see, God has changed the way in which we have thought about holiness. In fact, you've probably heard a thousand narratives that tell the story of the rich girl trained in all the proper ways of living. She's prim and proper, but she meets a boy. Maybe he's from a poor neighborhood. He doesn't have the same sort of family dynamics as she does. And he meets, she meets this boy, she begins to, she likes him, she falls in love with him, but he has no table manners, he doesn't use fancy words, and his parents let him do the things that parents never should, uh, and they certainly wouldn't let her do because it wasn't proper. But she falls in love with him nonetheless because he seems real, she can identify with him. He's entering into a way of life and living life in a way that she never has or never has been allowed to. You've heard that narrative told uh, a thousand times. And I, want, I would want to say to you this morning that that narrative and that narrative arc is told for the very first time in the nativity. 
not between a boy and a girl, but between the religious elite and their king. You see, the religious elite had become so uptight and concerned only with law-keeping and righteous living, they had begun to define holiness, and holiness was measured only by your ability to keep the laws and obey all the rules. And so if you could do what, what they did, or if, if you could uh, simply align your morality with all the right things, then you were declared to be holy. There was no admission of, of brokenness, no admission of sin or weakness, uh, no just offering out loud that uh, they are in need of a Savior, just simply uh, righteous living, holiness, and then the coming of the Messiah who will come only to make us all the more holy and righteous by the, by the rules that we follow or the rules that he will lay down. But Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, breaks onto the scene by being born among animals and then placed in a feeding trough. It's the king of the religious elite who then shows them a way of life that they didn't know previously was available to them. And certainly many reject that. They say, no, God, Jesus Christ cannot be the Messiah. For all the ways in which he was born, the life that he lived, the death that he died, all of these things are not pointing us to the Messiah that we had come to expect and that we certainly think that we deserve. So the religious elite and their view of the world began to, to bar them from seeing the beauty of the Messiah who had come to rescue them. You see, the good news of Christmas today is that Jesus enters into the human story in the most humble of ways possible. The King of Kings embraces the brokenness of humanity. The Holy One of God enters the mess of our sin. And what God does in the birth of Christ is he begins to totally redefine what holiness and power actually look like. And what we find out is that holiness doesn't look like we thought it looked. And power actually doesn't look the way that we thought it looked. In fact, what the Jesus story does, what the Christmas story does, is it turns everything up on its head And so the greatest holiness is one that actually enters into our mess. It's not that Jesus sacrificed his holiness in order to be born in a manger, in a stable, among shepherds and animals and all of that. It isn't that any of that is sacrificed, but rather it is that Jesus displays the holiness of God when he enters into that mess. Does that make sense? And so the greatest holiness is one that enters into our mess. So it means that God's holiness is not expressed by staying clear and keeping his distance and and staying unstained, but rather his holiness is expressed by entering into the very mess of our lives. And can we just admit that from time to time, our lives are a mess. And if our view of God says that God is distant and he is keeping sort of an arm's length away from us in the midst of those times, then we have, then we have not paid attention to what the Christmas story is trying to point us to. The other thing that the Christmas story just absolutely churns on its head is, is the, our idea of power. We've always understood that the greatest power is, is measured by someone's ability to overcome another, oftentimes through violence, right? Our imaginations of power are, are limited almost exclusively to overcoming another by means or by way of violence. 
But again, the Christmas story, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus turns that absolutely on its head where now the greatest power is one that serves others with self-sacrificial love. And so power is no longer measured by someone's ability to overcome another through violence, but now it's measured by our demonstration of self-sacrificial love where power is now demonstrated by pouring ourselves out for the benefit of the other. If you want to know what it means to be a leader or to be powerful, let's say in your marriage, then it's a great place to start is what can I do to serve the other? What are the ways in which I can pour myself out for their benefit? In fact, I tell couples in premarital counseling, the only way this marriage will work, well, you may stay together, but you may not be happy. But the only way that for you to, to, to find a great God-honoring marriage is not 50-50, not compromised, not drawing a line down the middle, not his and hers, but each one of us pouring yourself out for the benefit of the other. That's God's design for marriage, and that's the only way it works well. But God gives us this, this picture of marriage and the gift of marriage and the relationship of marriage as, as an example of how we ought to be living our lives um, for, toward other people. In fact, I saw a tweet right? Because I love Twitter. I saw a tweet today, today or yesterday that said, discipleship is learning to reorient our relationships around Christ. In other words, it's a way of saying that when I become a believer in Jesus Christ and I embrace the mysteries demonstrated to us in his birth and in his life and in his death and resurrection, it begins to totally change the way in which I begin to relate to the other person. And so, his birth in a stable among animals, his first bed as a manger, shows us that God is willing and able to enter into the messiness of our lives. And so can I just say to you today, church, that whatever mess is going on in your life right now, God is entering in. His holiness is right there. His power is right there, seeking to bring healing and reconciliation and renewal and forgiveness and all the things that God is about. God is entering into that mess. He's not saying, oh, figure that out on your own because I'm so holy, I can't touch that. But rather he is saying, because I am holy and because I possess all power, I'm going to enter right into the midst of that. And I'm going to seek to bring God-honoring things out of it. God enters our mess. He embraces our brokenness. I wonder how many of us see the brokenness of our own selves, our own shortcomings, the ways in which we fall short. And we are so often led to see those as weaknesses. And it can often lead to, be, to, to shame and guilt. And, and maybe that's some things that are inside of our control. We might say, oh, that's, a, that's a, it's just part of my personality. We might say, oh, my, my body is failing. And there are things that I just have to deal with to deal with my, my own body because of disease or, or whatever. And we might be ashamed of those things. We might be guilty about those things. We might try to hide those things from others. We might try to hide those things from God because God is holy and good and, and powerful and strong. And listen to this. I want you to hear this this morning. The, the beauty of the Christmas story, the mystery of the Christmas story points us to this reality. God is not only comfortable in your brokenness, but God 
embraces your brokenness. God is at home in all of the ways that you fall short. I wonder if this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he was talking about his own weaknesses, his own thorns in his, in his flesh. And we have no idea really what that is. We have some evidence that it was a, a physical ailment of some kind. But Paul says, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed for this to go away. And yet it, wa- it won't. And he makes these confessions. He says, your grace is sufficient for me. And in my weakness, God is made strong. And I think that the Apostle Paul has captured this idea that God is not ashamed of our brokenness, but rather God enters in to the point where he embraces even those things that we might be ashamed of. And so today, if I want you to get anything, maybe there's a mess going on in your life. Maybe maybe it's because of something you did. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's completely out of your control. I want you to know that God in his holiness and in his power, enters into that mess. And then maybe you have some brokenness, some shortcoming. And maybe you live your life just ashamed of that. I want you to begin to just recognize that the God of love embraces that. but, but, But let me say it differently. Let's not remove that from who you are, right? Because it's part of who you are. And so maybe I could say this. God in his love embraces you. All of you. Every part of you. He embraces you. And that's part of what this truth, this reality, this beauty of God made flesh being born in a stable. And so regardless of how the nativity is depicted, uh, as you go about your homes and churches and shopping centers and wherever else, whenever you see a nativity, whether it's made of, of people who look historically accurate or whether it's made of snowmen or marshmallows or Legos, when you look at the baby in the manger, I want you to remember and be reminded that Christ is present, he is involved, and he is fully to enter into whatever mess is in your life. And so may each nativity serve to remind us that Jesus in his holiness and in his power enters into the dirtiest places of our lives and into the dirtiest places of our world in order to bring healing, redemption, and wholeness.